Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast, powered by Exabel. I'm Mark Fleming-Williams. In this episode, I speak to the founder of ESG Analytics, Kum Rajan, and Anna-Marie Washer, the founder of Eve Blue, the ESG platform for investors. First up, it's Q Rajan, with whom I discussed the creation and sale of his company ESG Analytics and the ESG market more generally. In other news, I will be speaking at Beryl Elites in New York on June the 20th and 21st. I hope to see many listeners there. So in this episode, I'm joined by Kayum Rajan, the founder of ESG Analytics. Thanks very much for joining today, Kayum. Thanks for having me. I'm going to call you Q from now on um, because that's what that's what people call you, and it's uh, and it's easier. Um, so th- very nice to have you, Q. Um, so Q, you are the founder of ESG Analytics, which is exactly as it sounds, um, and. It's just been bought, in fact, by um, by the RepTrack company. So congratulations on that. They're, they're now your employer, I believe. Thank you. Yep. Chained uh, back to the machine. <laughs> <laughs> Jolly good. Um, so you are um, obviously a, a knowledge on on ESG, um, and um, and so we can we can definitely talk all things ESG. But let's why don't you why don't you go back as far as you like to kind of set the stage for this conversation as to did you have any kind of alternative data leanings before ESG analytics or or, or should we just tell the story of ES, ESG analytics? How would you like to how would you yeah. like to begin? I mean, I think it's it's a combined story, um, and it's one of like alternative data, finance, and just startup life. But I'll give the background. So the core for me has always been finance. So I grew up wanting to manage portfolios and was trading from a very young age. And so when I went to school, it was for finance. Um, I got my CFA, and um, as I was sort of in the workforce, one thing that, that really caught my attention was programming. And so uh, even as a kid, I was doing a little bit of programming, but it's not what I went to school for. And so I started coding and learning how to apply Python to financial data. And that was sort of my two loves kind of came together there. So it was like finance and data. Um, and then fast forward a few years, like into the workforce, I was working for an investment company and they got acquired and I had a chance to stay with them or go and start something new. And so I'd met a couple of co-founders and we'd started a company in the blockchain space where I was sort of the uh, one of the original co-founders, but I kind of was a jack of all trades, master of a few, you know, wearing the product manager hat, some of the developer hats, the legal, the data analytics. And that's kind of where I cut my teeth in terms of managing and building products. Um, When are are we? When are we in time now? In this time, I think we're in 2017. 2017. Um, Okay. Yeah. I joined EY, uh, Ernst & Young after that, and uh, in consulting where we did a bunch of data uh, infrastructure uh, work as well. Uh, but once you do your first startup, you you get that itch, right, and that bug, and so you do. But why did you why why did the itch take you away from blockchain? That was surely if uh, you 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 finished that in 2019, and that, that you know if anything if anything it's it's continued to what well, was there anything which would did something else come up? Well, I mean, no, because you went from there to uh, to EY. So why 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 did you not stay on in blockchain? It's a good question. I don't think blockchain has gone from my uh, my repertoire because I actually have a Ethereum tattoo on my left arm because that's what got me into the blockchain world. So uh, 
I'm kind of one of these people. Have you, like, when have, I, you have you made an NFT of it yet? <laughs> not, not of that tattoo. But that's a good idea. Um, the thing is, like, I feel like when I talk about my interest, it's like, you know, it's data, finance, and like blockchain, and that's sort of where all the realms come together. And my struggle in life is always finding a way to combine all of them. If you know what I mean? Yes. Well, I, I, I think it, I think it'll get easier as time goes on for me. Exactly. And um, so when I was finishing up at EY, um, we were sort of like in the swing of COVID because this is like early 2020. And mm. for the ESG world, I'd always looked at these ESG ETFs, which had like the same sort of core stocks, like Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, Google. And I was like, this is not ESG. I'm like, why? Like, why is everything just seeming the same? And um, when I started looking into it, it was just because people, there wasn't that much coverage. Um, you know, everything was based on like company disclosed information and stuff like that. What was happening in tandem is uh, during the like sort of peak of COVID, like markets were just whipsawing and like, you know, we were seeing like markets being halted and 20% declines, 30% declines in a day. And uh, you couldn't really wait for economic data to come out because it is, you know, it comes out every month. And I started looking at the, the open table data, um, which was, you know, basically restaurant reservations booked day in, day out. And that was like a more real-time gauge of the economy. And that was like sort of the spark that made me think about, okay, how can we apply alternative data to the ESG world? And of course, you know, that's very strongly linked to like financial markets and everything like that. So uh, that's, that was like the genesis of the idea. And I just started coding away and that's how the idea started. And that's how the alternative data angle uh, came into it. And you were inspired. I think you've, you've said you were inspired by uh, true value labs who'd done a, who'd done a similar thing a, a few years back. Were you, did you have a particular kind of model in mind when you were, when you were trying to think about this? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that sort of differentiates us is that we're a SaaS platform, whereas I think a lot of uh, alternative data plays and data plays in general are, you know, quite high ticket items that are sold very exclusively or proprietarily to hedge funds and other kind of people. But when I was like in the investment industry early on as a, in the portfolio management side, I would always see like all the big sort of um, tools like Refintive and Bloomberg and stuff, you know, that gets done by the company, but each team sort of uses their own little tools for stock charting and stuff like that. And so I wanted to create something where you could use a credit card as a team and sort of, you know, purchase something that's just going to be a useful tool. Uh, and that's why, you know, we, our price was 80 bucks a month, not 8,000 a month. Uh, so that was like, our target was like the mid, mid market segment and making it a little bit more uh, inclusive to access like that data. Okay, so what was your so you you begin so I should have said um, you are you are a Canadian based in Canada in case yep. that helps people uh, in case that helps people place you, um, but you so um, you founded uh, ESG Analytics in July 2020. So in the in the depths of the rest of the world's despair, you were you yeah. were pulling your sleeves up while other people were learning how to make bread. You were you were <laughs> creating creating a company, which is uh, some would say even more productive. So uh, congratulations on that. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I know we were we were like a straight up COVID baby, like all the way across. <laughs> so you did a so ESG analytics. What was the you've you've hinted at it? What was the product? What was the company? Yeah. So the product was basically um, looking at different data sources outside of traditional corporate disclosure. So when you think corporate disclosure, you know financial statements and ten uh, Ks and official releases and stuff like that, company reports. We're looking at like other data sources, so news, media, PR, social, stuff like that, to um, try and extract ESG signals in real time, right? Or, you know, daily. And so what that ended up doing is like looking at all different companies, looking at all 
all this different data that was done about them and taking those signals. And what that is is sort of the outside-in perspective. Uh, so we use a lot of natural language processing and a few other tools, uh, but it really gives you very, uh, I won't say different insights, but it's unique insights that can either validate um, existing ESG scores, ratings, and in many cases where these don't even exist, this becomes sort of your only tool to judge a company's ESG performance where there's no other data. Where were you getting the things to run your NLP over? Were you scraping the internet? Yeah, so combination. So we used some some news feeds. We did uh, a bunch of scraping for uh, different news and media sources connected to stuff like uh, Twitter. Um, we even built some scrapers to go and scrape companies' web pages and stuff like that. Um, and then we built our NLP um, taxonomy and stuff in-house, which then extracts that and run sentiment analysis and stuff like that on top of it. So I have had I've had rep risk on this on this podcast before, and they were um, they were doing they've been evolving towards doing what you're talking about since whatever 2004 2005 out of switzerland i've had true value labs we've mentioned um who were doing this yeah. from and bashing their head against the wall between as, as I, I seem to recall from kind of 2013 2014 and then things started to click um yeah. you're you're arriving on the scene in july 2020 did you find did you find a market that was was saturated or was it growing so fast that they just felt like there was new opportunity and, and those guys who I mentioned just couldn't have it all sewn up because it was just ESG was becoming such an important word. Yeah, like you said, they started like pretty early. And so I think, you know, as the trend was emerging, like they were sort of a new and early tool. Um, maybe they had like a bit of a, a first mover sort of aspect of them. They were really the model like they, to me, said, hey, here's a validated market. But when I, and I did my competitive research, right, like pretend to buy all, all the solutions stuff to see like what the price was and all that kind of stuff. And that's where I saw that the opportunity was that they were, you know, for example, like Repisk is an extremely successful company, but they, they have maybe like five or 600 clients, right? And that's because mm. they sell to JP Morgan and to all these other, you know, big institutions. And I was like, mm. okay, if I look at the scope of, you know, as an, as an example, when I worked at RBC Domain Securities, our one branch had like 50 portfolio management teams. Each one of those teams is an independent entity. They're not going to pay $30,000 a year for a data source, but they will pay $1,500 or $2,000 for a data source for same, the same sort of tools that other portfolio managers need. So I was like, there's a bit of a missing market here, right? And that's kind of where I was like, okay, we can actually go to this with a similar solution, but a much differentiated uh, business model. Um, plus yeah. just work on getting more coverage, more insights and making this an all an overall tool. Um, and so that's where I saw like, yeah, there's a really good opportunity. And uh, once we started building, uh, it turns out that we really had the right skill set to go in and actually build this fast because it all it all made sense to me at that time. Right. It was like almost like that perfect culmination of of skills where I was like, yeah, we we can build this and we can build this pretty fast. What does the um, what does the smaller end of the market want with ESG? Do they want different things to the to the large shape and organs, etc.? I think so. I mean, I think the so the large JP Morgan side of things, they, from my experience, anyhow, they're sort of buying any and every data source that they can find, right? To um, run analysis, to benchmark their portfolios, maybe to build new tools and stuff like that, but. As, if, as an example, if you're a company itself, like let's say you know you're Apple, you might not really be buying rep risk because it's really made for investment managers like solely. Mm. And I think True Value Labs falls in the same category. And so the other difference as well is um, 
like WordPress as an example started off as a consultancy. So they, the, you know, the, te the technology and the way that things are, are done are, are, is more geared to like things like FTP file sharing and stuff like that, where we saw a really good opportunity because the clients that we target, we kind of put them in two categories. There's people that care about a few companies and people that care about a lot of companies. So financial advisors, investment portfolio managers, um, people like that, they care about a lot of companies because they're doing due diligence and ongoing monitoring. But then we also have people that care about a few companies like PR communication consultants, ESG consultants who are working with companies, companies themselves, they might just want to benchmark themselves plus five or six different people. And so there's this opportunity to then create these tools that are a bit more crafted to their use case. Um, and then my favorite is the startups. Uh, so sustainability and fintech startups, they want really modern APIs that are fast, that are well-documented. And that's something that we offer in spades. Um, where we can then enable them to build really cool uh, new tools, right? Uh, and new ESG features in their product. So the reputation management stuff is particularly interesting because you ended up getting bought by RepTrack and that seems to be their, um, yeah. their game, isn't it? Yeah, so, that, so that's interesting. It sounds like, so the fact that you're breaking beyond the financial services and into the corporate world, which is something which we're seeing in alternative data in general and, and um is a is a is a is a is a trend in general but i'm intrigued because when alternative data is used outside of financial services it starts being called external data because alternative data is is the you the word that investment managers use for external data essentially um esg is that not also quite a financial word isn't isn't that hasn't that come from and so Calling yourself ESG analytics was that was that not a hurdle that you were also having to then explain what ESG was if you were going to the corporate world? Yeah, I mean that's a good that's a good question actually, um, and I think part of this is always I think part of the sales process for a firm like ours is there is always going to be a bunch of education because not only do you need to no matter if somebody knows what ESG is or isn't it's like that's like the first education piece which is why the first thing we ever published was a white paper that was that was entitled, what is ESG? And that was like our top downloaded uh, white nice. paper. <laughs> like that was before we had anything live. It's like, come to our website. It's like, what is ESG? Download now. <laughs> but then yeah. once you pass that hurdle, it's like, okay, well, we're using like, you know, artificial intelligence and, uh, you know, NLP based tools for alternative data. So you got to educate, like, what is alternative data? What is AI? What is NLP? That's why I think, you know, the people that have even come to us today and even like the fact that we're required, these are, I think that segment of the market is still people that are like, they get it. They're like, oh, we see issues a trend. We see the alternative data. We see the need for AI. And a lot of our articles and content has always been like, oh, like how can AI help ESG? Or, you know, what does alternative data mean for ESG? All that kind of stuff. And I think the market is actually still somewhat early because that's a lot of different terminology and sort of things to take into account before things even go more mainstream. So we're lucky to even be where we are today, but I think it's going to get even more powerful uh, over time. Do you think ESG? Because another word might have been sustainability in a way, or or um, yeah. or, do, or does that not cover it? Is there is there a corporate sector phrase that covers ESG? Does what does for the corporate world what ESG does for the financial world? I think ESG is the broader term because yeah. it started off so it's as taking um, over. It's spreading. It's spreading to the rest yeah. of the world. Yeah, I think if you look at the history of it, it used to be like re responsible investment, uh, maybe, and then it was there was CSR, right? So corporate CSR yeah. that was used in the boardrooms. Um, but now, really, ESG is that all-encompassing term. Whether you're on the investment management side or you're on the company side, and that's where, like, when you have frameworks like the Sustainability Accounting and Standards Board, 
you know, they they use the term ESG and they have their own taxonomy, blah, 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 right? So I think the world has now converged on here's, you know, ESG. And obviously our name was pretty self-explanatory. Then it was a well-chosen name. I take it all back. Bravo. <laughs> it's pretty much because we could get the .io domain name. I was like, what? Oh, what nice. Well, that's better and better. Um, so ESG has been going through some interesting times. It, it, um, so you, you kind of joined in July 2020. And I feel I don't know when you would probably would need to do a Google um, word search to find out when the peak of ESG as a kind of ESG mania hits or yeah. even if it's if it's hit already but um the how would you characterize the the journey esg seems to have been going on in the last two years uh, i feel like everyone went mad for it because it was because it was important almost everyone went mad for it because everyone else was going mad for it and so as a result there was a lot of piling into esg a lot of buying esg for uh esg friendly stocks um and potentially the the conversation might have changed a little bit this year because ESG friendly stocks have not been outperforming in the way that they were were for the first couple of years and potentially people are recognizing that ESG is not necessarily a chasing alpha type of game on the on the long term or or and correct me in any of this that you disagree with or or agree with or whatever um yeah. but maybe it's more actually a just we are shaping the world of the future and these are the stocks that are going to have the almost like a kind of, you know, apartheid for South Africa. And actually that doesn't exist anymore because we had apartheid. I don't want to be inflammatory, but you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Almost like that. So, um, so how would you, how would you tell the story? I've just tried. How would you tell the story of the last two, last two years in ESG? That's a lot of really good snippets. Um, So I think, okay, the first one is sort of the, the history of the growth, right? And, I think it's it's been around for a while. Like ESG is not a new term, right? But it's obviously taken off a lot. And I think, you know, part of that is sort of the world moving more towards values alignment. Um, there's also like a really big intergenerational shift in wealth happening right now from Gen X to uh, Gen Y and stuff like that, right? And, you know, all the research has shown millennials and all of, you know, the others <clears throat> care more about environmental stuff, et cetera, et cetera. So, that by itself has a lot of, is a really big tailwind because money is moving into hands of people who care about that a lot more. And then also um, people noticing that are going to build products to cater to that, you know, and that's a bit of a positive feedback loop. The second thing, and I think the more important thing that happened behind the scenes is people started to, um, and when I say people, I mean like pension funds and bigger investors started to make this a pretty tangible part of their criteria. Right. And so what happens then is as companies need to get investment from the public markets, um, mm-hmm. that's coming from the vanguards of the world, from the Black Rocks, from uh, all these big pension funds. And suddenly they were like, hey, we need, uh, you know, the ESG criteria or even a basic ESG screen is part of our mandate. Right. Almost like part of like <clears throat> it's almost part of like due diligence. Right. Before investing in a company. Right. It's just a risk mitigation factor. And so that started coming into practice. And if you weren't able to do that, that meant that you are potentially at a much weaker advantage in capital markets because you're not getting the liquidity that you need to actually run as a company. And so that to me was like the really core thing that happened behind the scenes. And it, that, was, that was sort of the, 
the stick, whereas, you know, millennials and all the new investment products and all the revenue that can be associated with it, that's all the, the carrot part of it, right? But there was this plea. And this was the, the stick that I think came underneath to also push that even further. Um, so as a result, the people started doing that and companies then potentially lost that liquidity because they weren't part of this. And then everybody else saw everybody else doing it, like you said, and now it's become a thing right? Like it's a thing you can't, you can't not do. But uh, that's the history. And I forgot the second part of the question. Well, the the second part is, is then that it's so there was a huge buzz and a huge growth. But 2022 hasn't been so positive for ESG stocks. Yeah, so I have a specific viewpoint on this. Um, And so my viewpoint has always been that I don't necessarily I don't buy and I don't not buy the link between ESG and alpha. I think that historically, um, firms who do ESG ratings, who do ESG benchmarking and stuff like that are always going to try and make the argument that, hey, invest in this in this ESG portfolio and you can you can do good and you can have more alpha, right? Like you can have your cake and eat it too. To me, that's a lot of marketing speak because if I really wanted to, I can data mine anything I want to show you an index of outperforming ESG stocks. But really, it's, it's so dependent on everything and everybody has a different way of investing and and stuff like that. So, you know, I think it that makes for very good headlines, but I don't think there's so much substance underneath. What I do believe in is that, you know, if you are going to look at ESG from an alpha perspective or from an investment performance perspective, I think the key underline is that, you know, you're trying to reduce risk, right? So just when a company has pretty bad ESG, you tend to see like big declines and stuff. When a company has really, really, really good ESG, you don't necessarily see the same um, like up uptick on the opposite side. You know what I mean? It's almost like table stakes to do good, but really bad if you do bad. Um, mm. And I guess where that um, results in is people look at ESG as like a quality factor. So presumably you have a more ESG company, you have more quality in that company, you have more staying power, you have sort of mm. longer term sustainability growth and not sustainability from a green perspective but sustainability from a you know corporate sort of survival perspective and i think if they can prove they're taking this seriously then you can you can take it for granted that they take everything seriously to an extent and then i think that that's where it factors into from a you know it should always be looked at from a longer term sort of quality perspective um but i think when people look at like the short-term alpha of like hey look at this esg stock they didn't do well in 2022 versus s&p 500 it's like you know it's not even it's not even a window that we should look at. It's not even like that shouldn't even be a conversation, but you've been able to create a pretty good article out of it. So, you know, great. <laughs> that's my perspective. Anyhow, that's great. No, that's great. Um, so the next question is, uh, let's assume ESG is a, is a, is a positive thing and, and it uh, has exactly the mechanism that you describe. The next hole that I've seen um, picked in it is questioning just how effectively ESG is um, uh, actually doing the job that it's trying to do in terms of uh, rewarding the good and, and and punishing the bad. Is it the good who are getting into these, into the, uh, who are getting high ESG points and the bad who are not? Um, broadly speaking, um, if naught is uh, very poor um, success rate in actually identifying you know, doing its job of identifying the 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 the, the right ESG people, and if a hundred was that your your ESG portfolio absolutely rewards the good ESG people and 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 is, is doesn't reward the 
bad. Sorry about the long question. Um, yeah, 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 no. What, but what percentage? What percentage? How close do you think we are to actually having nailed it that if you're buying an ESG portfolio, then you are really rewarding the saints and, and not rewarding the devils? You know, I don't think we're super close. Uh, well, I think like I think we're somewhere in the middle. And I mean, the reasons I say that is because there's like a few issues in the ESG data space, which people need to, you know, actually make these decisions. But like one of the things that if you look at the big data providers like MSCI or Fintive, Bloomberg and the other ones, um, one of the big issues is that like they all have their own independent scores and frameworks. And a lot of the times, like the correlation between the scores is totally different. And it might even be different with ours as well, right? I'm not putting them under the bus. Like, I think we're, we're part of this as well. Um, but because then you look at a company like, let's say Boeing, and one person's going to be like, hey, they're 80 out of 100. And one person's like, hey, they're 20 out of 100. One person's like, hey, they're 100 out of 100. And if you have like a financial advisor, or like an investment manager looking at this, they're like, like, what am I looking at? Like, am I throwing darts across the wall? Right. Mm. And <clears throat> part of it is all these different frameworks and stuff. Um, then the other part of it is, not every company has the resources to actually disclose information, right? So you find there's a very big size bias in terms of who actually has ESG data out there. And so that's where I think like, you know, firms like ours and others are like, this is starting to be more rounded because now people are starting to converge around the right taxonomy to report. So as an example, I think the last five years, 10 years, people would sort of use any different... Sorry, I think somebody's mowing their lawn outside. I think someone's using a circular saw to get through your wall. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think previously, like each of these different firms would all have their own different classification systems and methodologies and et cetera, et cetera. And so when you start to combine these, you're like this crazy jigsaw puzzle of like, where do things go? But now um, people are starting to converge around frameworks like SASB and others and all of the rating providers are starting to use that. Uh, framework and the companies are starting to report on that framework. And so I think as we get more in apples to apples, we have less missing data, we have more complete information to sort of, you know, make those different scores and, and ratings better. But I think at the moment, it's a little, I find it personally a little bit confusing um, for investors who want to look at this. Um, you know, obviously, they'll, they'll outsource this to people who then come up with some sort of amalgamated thing or ETF to make it easier for them. But it's also very confusing for the companies because think about this, like you're a company and you're being told by the investors, you're like, you need to do this. And you have like these, all these five different frameworks and you're like, I got to report on that. And some of this data matters, some of it doesn't. So there is just a bit of a mess right now that is less messy than a few years ago, but still yeah, it's, it's, causing, it's, it's causing those issues. Yeah. It's the market growing up, isn't it? And um, the wild west, the, the cities, the cities form, and the sheriffs get more control. And uh, that's exactly, and we, go and we got exactly. we got civilization. Um, do you do you think we end up with? Uh, it's been put to me um, recently, actually, that we end up with three maybe um, big um, ESG rating providers in the same way as you've got the kind of Fitch and Moody's S and P providing providing the um, the credit rating. Do you end up with the um, with with kind of a few a handful of big companies which are providing this for the market, saying, "Look, you know, MSCI is saying this," and so um, so that yeah, is that how it ends up? It's a good question, and so you know, the key difference with every website and stock rating thing and stuff out there is that Moody's, Fitch, S and P are uh, regulated credit rating agencies, 
Like it is literally a, it, it, there's a regulatory process to become one of those, which is why there's, there's very few of them. Um, right now, the sustainability ratings market, market, market is uh, unregulated. So anyone, which is, I guess I'll put myself in that category. I'm a great example of this, actually. Anyone can come in and be like, here is the score for Apple. That's literally what we did, right? Like it's S&P, Refintiv, like they got, they got no stamp to be like, hey, we are the designated rating agency. So basically the market's completely unregulated right now. I know the SEC and others are looking at this because you can see why you might want regulation in a market like this because it's in these scores are influencing products, investments, like decisions, right? Across so many different things. So if it turns out that the market does start to get regulated, the ESG ratings marketplace specifically, then yeah, I think you'll see just a couple, uh, you know, a few on a global scale that actually do those ratings. But at the moment, it's basically a free free for all. But that's exactly, I mean, the fact that these things have an effect on the market is the same in the credit ratings. And so big company, so companies have come to represent, you know, they they have come to solve that. I was, I was wondering if maybe this should be a, um, there should be a, it should be issued by the government. Actually, um, maybe I, I I was wondering if you could actually ultimately trust the market to to do this. To so sorry, to when you say the government, like for the government to issue the rating. Yeah, like a like a government government rating of this is the ESG rating of British Airways or whatever. I don't think that would happen. I think I think if anything, it would be similar to today, right? Like the government will be like, hey, you know, Moody's is. Uh, rating provider that's regulated and S&P is a rating provider that's regulated and hey, they provide yeah. EHC ratings. You know what I mean? Like they will it to outs- yeah, outsource it to sort of do that. So I think yeah. that's like, you know, if you do that or, you know, we sort of remain in, in this ecosystem, which is also very exciting because it means you can get all these different types of ratings, right? Um, so interesting. Yeah. You, um, so you mentioned the, so you mentioned the stick um, and you mentioned the fact that regulation is driving, um, uh, has driven people into into ESG. Um, do you? How do you see that continuing? I've I, I had um, Eagle Alpha on this podcast, um, Neil Hurley, and he was suggesting that he sees ESG as as kind of a a gateway drug for alternative data for for the long tail of asset management companies who so far haven't used. Um, alternative data as much as they might um, and but regulation is changing such that ESG is it, they're going to have to comply with the ESG regulation and that's going to bring alternative data across their across their um, doorstep and then you know before you know it you're using alternative data and why not use it for all the other reasons as well does that does that sound um, and we're talking about the investment world obviously here does that sound um, possible yeah, totally. I mean, and first of all, I love the guys at Eagle Alpha. <clears throat> I think they're awesome. Um, and yeah, I, I can see that because I think in this space, as we mentioned, there's a few data issues, right? Coverage, size, transparency, time, blah, blah, blah. And so when people do want to in- include like ESG as part of their investment process, like we're seeing this as a requirement in like Europe, but not so much in the rest of the world, which I think is moving that way just a bit slower. Um, as they do that, as they do that, they'll realize that hey, there's these gaps, and ESG is one of these places where there's a bunch of alternative data that is going to help you address that. And I think to Neil's point, once you do that, then you're like, hey, we're already sort of tapped into this platform. These insights make sense. It's all it's all uh, a bit of a positive feedback loop, I think, for the alternative data space. Fantastic. Well, that sounds great. Um, so the future, then, tell me, we're in 2022 now. 
what does what do what do people think when they say the term ESG in 2030? Or has, has it been so subsumed into the architecture that no one even bothers saying it anymore because it's so assumed? That's a good question. Um, I think I think ESG is quite assumed at the moment. Um, I know you know everyone in my family knows what it is, but that's why because I've been pushing in their face. Uh, but I think people, I think people are very familiar with the term sustainability and sort of you know companies trying to do good in the world. I think where we're going to go though is people gain a bit more of a refined understanding because even ESG as a whole, it's pretty, it's pretty loose, right? And within there, there is a lot of different topics to consider within the concept of ESG. And so, as an example, under SASB, they cover twenty six different topics across uh, five different subtopics which go up to like ESG, right? And the reason for that is that every company cares about different things, right? Or sorry, different things matter. So like materiality um, is sort of the concept where what matters to Boeing is very different from what matters to Facebook, right? And so I think as people sort of migrate, I think they should, I hope there is a bit of a more deeper understanding of, you know, what stuff really matters for what industry, so we're not just saying, hey, here's the ESG score for this company or that company, but rather, okay, across the things that actually do matter for Boeing, you know, here are here's how they do, right? And I think that's where we can get beyond like, hey, this is like an 8 out of 10, this is a 9 out of 10, but really a bit more of a semantic contextual understanding. Um, English supermarkets now, some of them have a traffic light system where you can you can see if it's uh, if it's got red, orange, or green in salts or in fats or in sugars or in in whatever. You could end up with a similar traffic light system. So if you're a plane company, then you particularly an airline, then you particularly look to the fuel um, uh, traffic light to see are they are they doing good or bad for fuel versus you know versus other things perhaps. Do you, do you get me? Totally. In fact, I did a podcast uh, with this guy, Jason Zapp, who's the founder of a certification body called the HNRC, which is like the human, or it might be HRNC, something like that. And it's like human rights in the supply chain. And so what they do is they work on a certification for companies. Uh, they do like deep due diligence, almost like an ISO audit of their supply chain to look for human rights abuses, um, you know, forced labor, slave labor, all that kind of stuff. The output is, you know, obviously a, a better supply chain for that company. Um, but a potential data product that they've been thinking of is like, you know, now you go to, let's say, H&M or <clears throat> whatever company you're going to buy clothes from or something else. And there's a QR code that you can scan and you can actually then see, okay, like here's how the company fares. And here's actually like a, a video of their supply chain and uh, sorry, of their factories and how their workers conditions are. And, you know, almost like it's a bit of a, you can see that almost like with a Google Glass, like augmented reality. But I think those sort of, um, elements are coming in um, pretty fast. And we've also seen that with some of our startup customers at ESG Analytics um, who are creating things like Chrome extensions so that when you go to Nike.com or whatever it'll, and you look at a product, they'll be like, hey, here's what the rating is and here might be a more sustainable sustainable option or you know whatever. And mm -hmm. so I think you're empowering consumers with uh, different types of data points. So, I mean, you can yeah. see really why all of this is such huge business, right? It's like it is driving consumer demand. And I think where that occurs is going to drive investment. And it's just, you can't really take it out of the system now that it's in it. 
for sure for sure so we've done um esg in 2030 um wh- where will q be in 2030 um what's the uh what's the what's the dream you you want to do something which will combine ideally blockchain finance and data um yeah. any any ideas it's a good question um so i feel like my brain's always working on new things and i'm sure i'll be in the esg space for a little while um I'd say my my true love beyond that is macroeconomics um, and I think alternative data. So yeah, alternative data and finance is where sort of my core is. Uh, and so I know like even right now, I'm starting to do a lot more writing on applying alternative data to the macroeconomic lens where I can do research on things that are happening like energy and inflation and tie in alternative data insights. So that's something I've just started. Uh, and I think for me, I've never really had a five-year plan or a 10-year plan. I have a general direction of life, which is, again, finance and data and that kind of stuff. And as Matthew McConaughey says, like, just give me a direction with lots of room to swerve. And so I think the idea is sort of find me, find me over time. Uh, but that's going to be one area that I'm going to really be uh, diving deeper uh, over the next little while. Fantastic. Well, it sounds like a it sounds like a, a wild ride. Um, so, uh, so brilliant. Well, Q, thanks so much for uh, for coming talking about ESG. Um, I found it very interesting. And um, yeah, best of luck with with whatever the uh, look. I look forward to looking up the newsletter and, and checking it out. And best of luck with any future projects you have. Sounds good. Yeah, I'll provide it. I'll provide the link, but it's alt autonomics at uh, com. And yeah, thanks for having me and asking such great questions. Fantastic. Thanks, Q. Next up, it's Anna-Marie Wascher, the founder of Eve Blue, the ESG platform for investors. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Eve Blue is a ESG SaaS solution for financial services, and we work on uh, really improving ESG integration across investment workflows, uh, thinking about how to solve the challenges of getting more investment teams and wealth managers to implement implement ESG as part of their investment processes, client work, um, regulatory conditions, and compliance. So we're very excited about what we're building and how quickly the ESG market is now moving along uh, in our direction. It's Eve Blue. I've been I've been dropping the name casually, but it's it's Y V E S Blue, yes. one word. Um, is there a, is there an Eve? Is there an Eve Saint Laurent uh, equivalent for for ESG? There's a Eve Klein. Um, so you know nothing existed in the market. At the time, things that you know were similar but different, and so Eve Klein created his own color of blue, and we created our own uh, ESG solution. It's also a little bit of a smiley nod to the UN sustainability goals that are all different colors, and because the the ocean and sky are both blue, absorbing all other colors, um, you know, we thought it was a nice reflection on multiple factors across sustainability. Who's Eve Klein? Is this a, is this a um, who is Eve Klein? Eve Klein is a very famous French artist um, ah. from, I think, the, the 70s. And uh, he was made famous even a, several years ago. I think hit one of his pieces were one of the highest auction prices ever recorded at Sotheby's or Christie's. So we, we always had an internal joke that hopefully Eve Blue, the company, will reflect a similar valuation one day. <laughs> I see. I see. The one I'm, The one I'm thinking of is The Blackest Black. Do you know about that? Oh yeah, this is different, but that's also a very good one. 
Similar idea. Yeah, that was another artist. Anyway, let's not get sidetracked. So um, you created, uh, so Eve Blue, and the idea behind Eve Blue was there was a need, uh, an increasing need, and, and you were, um, I mean, a little, a little bit ahead of the current absolute mad craze for ESG. You were spotting potentially that it was that it was things that were about to get very, very crazy um, for for ASG as it has for the last few years. Um, but you saw that um, there's data out there and there's investors who want to use that ESG data. But potentially the gap in the market was a place, a, a tool which could present that data in the in the in the way that the ways that is most usable for by an investment an investor of some sort or portfolio manager and you could create the place where the esg sense sense can be made out of the esg data yes yeah i mean our mission and mine you know always has been had to provide better access for less money in more efficient time and so still today if an organization tries to implement ESG into their investment workflow, so that could be an asset manager, long only hedge fund, even private equity, um, you know, wealth management groups, both RAs and you know, large wealth management inside institutions like a Morgan Stanley or J.P. Morgan, um, it takes at least eighteen months, and usually, you know, if not hundreds of thousands, mostly millions of dollars to implement, which limits most organizations from really implementing a strong ESG data set. It takes, you know, multiple data sets today. Eve Blue, we use over 20 different data sets, and most organizations are still just trying to select one. And, um, you know, the, the market is very new to your point. Most people are not trained or ESG specialists. And so how do you create an ESG specialist brain inside a computer system and offer a cheaper, more efficient solution for organizations that now need ESG versus it's just a, a nice to have. And so what does the solution look like? What does the platform look like? The platform has modular solutions that can be implemented in different ways. So our core initial product was a reporting solution that allowed investment teams to upload all of the holdings in their portfolio and push reports to compliance or also to look at single holdings and assess potential risks or opportunities through different data sets. So it could, you know, highlight uh, new sentiment data. It could highlight um, against its peers, you know, a lower standard of environmental policy or uh, a high level of carbon exposure. And as we've developed that solution over time, we now offer, um, kind of models and analytics. So what we do is take raw data like carbon from CDP uh, from CDP data and build carbon models so that you can see what your alignment is to what is called the UN IPC standard, which is a one and a half degree temperature. So is your portfolio under that exposure or is it over? And what holdings in your portfolio might have too much carbon exposure? Um, you know, what now where we're moving into is this kind of customization because not all clients are the same. And so you can reweight different E, S, or G sub data sets in the system and remodel the portfolio based on the themes that your client or you as a team might care about and highlight what data sets are most relevant to those themes. Okay. So you've got the platform from one end, um, from the from the buyer end, you've got the 
the investor of some sort who is inputting their portfolio and then comparing that against the data in the ways that you just described. Um, from the other end is coming the data. Um, so where, so what does what does that um, input look like? Yeah, I mean, you know, our ESG and impact team is always in the market looking for new data sets um, because ESG data providers tend to be really be a a black box of information, which means you don't really know how they've weighted the sub data. You don't know what data is modeled or reported. Um, and there is a, a pretty um, strange approach to how ESG data is collected by third parties today. It's usually, you know, teams that are outsourced scraping it directly off companies' websites and, and the inaccuracy around those reports is what financial markets have struggled with. And so mm. Um, what we think about is, okay, where do we think the highest quality of data is coming from? That's Aura's a core ESG data provider. Um, and then how can we support additional sets of data that are very specific to one single theme? So as an example, uh, SBTI, which is Science-Based Targets Initiative, uh, reports companies that have signed up to reduce carbon emissions, and, and we create data around um, those kind of announcements from from companies and do forward-looking carbon over time. Um, you know, one of my favorite is um, banking on climate change, which uh, tracks how much banks are actually financing fossil fuels and different types of fossil fuels. So if you look at an E or an environmental score of a bank, that's looking at, you know, how much um, they contribute to carbon based on retail spaces they have, uh, but not actually how much they're um, you know, offering up to, you know, finance the next gas pipeline or mountain uh, coal mining. And so, you know, those are kind of independent data sets that we find incredibly unique and valuable. So, um, so you, so you're going essentially, um, are you, uh, are you because there are, as you mentioned, there are ESG data providers out there um, of varying sizes. Um, I've had a couple on my on this podcast. I've had um, RepRisk and True Value yeah. Labs who got bought by by FactSet. Um, so two of the more established historic ones, potentially. But so you've got those out there. And then there's also various data sets um, around which can inform an ESG investment proposition. Um, yeah. Do you are you do you partner with the established ones? Are you are you only going for the ones which are um, which are not which are unestablished and perhaps it's more of a kind of ad hoc relationship? Can a can one of your portfolio manager or investor clients bring their own ESG data and bring it into the system? Yeah, uh, all great questions. I mean, again, we're really that ESG end to end SaaS solution, which means we're very flexible on the data side. Uh, for smaller firms that don't have the capacity to select their own data, we work with the main um, kind of big box ESG data providers. Uh, we've had a longstanding relationship with Refinitiv and really like them. And we're always speaking to other data providers to see if they, they would like to partner with us. We are not trying to disrupt kind of those mainstream data providers. We've been huge fans of TVL, True Value Labs, for a very long time, and, and we're early partners to them as an organization. Um, some of their team members now work at our organization and, you know, they take a very different approach using uh, natural language processing to, to assess new sentiment data published by third parties. And so versus just relying on how a company is reporting, they're out there really analyze, uh, 
analyzing new sentiment data and, you know, Repris also was like a very early leader in, in that space and have done some incredible work on um, drawing out unique sources of ESG information through new sentiment or um, published reports. Uh, we do also work with smaller, more uh, innovative organizations or, or groups that are thinking about ESG slightly differently, like ideal ratings or ally analytics or util, um, and we aggregate that data. Now, what we don't do and what we really hesitate is we don't want to merge different data provider scores. Um, it, it creates a, a worse black box, and it's mm. two different insights that really is very difficult to create an argument to say, hey, uh, you can merge third-party new sentiment data with one third-party ESG data provider. I think that's, you know, claiming that you can use AI on ESG data is a really risky proposition given the kind of inaccuracies and, and differences across the different ESG data providers and how they're collecting that information. Um, Larger organizations, to your second question, can bring their own data. So if you have built your own uh, ESG data warehouse, if you've built your own scores as an organization, it's very easy to implement that into our back end um, and get yourselves up and running where you can still use all of our models. You can reweigh ESG in the portfolio, see the leaders and laggards based on the themes that you're interested in. Uh, you can do compliance reporting, which is is a really hot topic now with SFDR in Europe uh, and the recent um, change in right ruling for SEC on ESG, which is a huge tailwind for our industry and, and better transparency in, in data as companies are required to report it out directly. Mm. Will you will you advise if uh, a client came and said, "Look, I know I need, I know I should be." Getting involved with ESG, but I just haven't got a clue. Would you advise them on which ESG data um, you recommend? Have you got a kind of recommended list of, of this is the this is the best starter pack, or 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 would you, or are you trying to be really market neutral in this and, and not choose between? Um, no, we'll you know we want people to implement ESG, and I think not offering any type of advice is just not going to move the needle, and so. We're not going to say, oh, this provider is better than the other, but based on how you're investing, here are the questions you need to ask data providers if you're going to go down this journey yourself, um, and here are the ones that you should most likely speak with. Now, as we scale and build our organization, we hope to expand more and more of our data partnerships and be able to you know, offer that recommendation as an automated solution in eFlue. Um, and that's dependent on, you know, what are the equities that you're trading or, or do you have credit and, and what has, which provider has the best coverage? Um, maybe you only care about environmental factors because you're a, you know, carbon zero fund and therefore you need to focus on where you can collect the most information on, on carbon for the companies that are in your portfolio. So it's always specific. It's not that one's better than the other. It really depends. Now, um, if we can offer that advice you know, on a demo call with a potential client, we are happy to do so. And, and that's where we want to position ourselves in the market is really a, a partner in developing ESG strategies and solutions within organizations. Interesting. Um, and so there are two, obviously, from an investment perspective, there are a few um, things that need to be borne in mind. One increasingly is ESG, which is a, which is a, a, a problem that you're, you're a solution for. 
but another one is 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 making money <laughs> per, yeah. per, per, perhaps the old-fashioned primary one um and so with that in mind how do you see eve blue sitting alongside um the primary the primary need which is to which is potentially is to is to get some kind of return on your investment would you where does where does eve blue fit in if you're an investor do you choose your portfolio based on um based on uh where you think what what you think will make money or whatever your whatever your investment criteria are and then you go and run it through eve blue and make sure everything's all right or do you get yourself a universe with eve blue and then go and go and uh go and crunch that down until it's until it's a small investable portfolio how how um how do you see yourself sitting alongside that kind of primary maybe primary goal maybe esg's becoming the primary goal if i don't know but uh, how do you see it along alongside that other goal i think it it depends on what the manager's attempting to do right i mean a dedicated esg manager usually screens a universe on esg factors whether it's like you know, companies that are leaders in transition energy. Um, and so that could be actually like you're looking at the automobile industry and GM and Ford actually have invested the most in EV um, and are better priced than Tesla and are acquiring their own lithium supply chains that are the cleanest form of mining because, you know, you can't forget that even EV vehicle, uh, electric vehicles require lithium, which is a commodity that needs to be mined. Um you know, I think how we think about it is I I don't believe that EVLU will be forever a standalone solution. We have a strategic partnership with Simcor that offers more traditional portfolio uh, analysis tools uh, focused on performance. Now, the more that we can get users using the EVLU system, reweighting their portfolios, um, if if we're able to evaluate that data and how managers are using the system, or also we have an engagement module to, that allows managers to track the engagements they're working on for companies or put more accurate information in, um, there's ways that we're thinking about how can we get managers to share that information if anonymized and get better assessments on what the market's saying about a company. Um, you know, Carbon tax is something that will really impact performance uh, of a portfolio. And so we're building a carbon epic model that will assess the impact to cash flow of companies based on, you know, where they're operating and what the carbon tax is of that country that we believe in and how that's impacted cash flow. So I think the the variance between financial performance and ESG performance is closing over time, uh, where it's essentially becoming the same thing if you have low ESG. Uh, you might have low performance. And, you know, then you have, unfortunately, something like uh, a war in Ukraine and there's major impacts and oil prices skyrocket and, you know, ESG gets turned on its head. And so we are thinking about how to do factor testing in portfolios. We're we're testing some products there um, that portfolio managers can assess the potential financial performance of their portfolios using ESG data um, and, you know, a great example, sometimes you think you, you've hedged the portfolio, um, but you might have doubled down because you are only invested in non-oil companies and only transition companies. So we've seen managers make that mistake out of flat world. And, uh, you know, we think about that and take that experience with us into building solutions that would really work for managers where we can say, hey, actually, you're not hedged. You've doubled down on 
the environment. And if another war breaks out and, and oil prices skyrocket, um, you might be in trouble. So, mm, yeah. Um, okay. I, it's a question I should have asked you earlier, actually. Um, who, who's your, who's your target market? Who are your clients? What are we, what are we looking at? Uh, so our target market is really asset managers. Today, we are only operating in public markets in terms of product solutions. Um, and so that's hedge fund managers, long only managers. Uh, we've had a long-term strategic relationship with Titan advisors out of Connecticut. It's a hedge fund to fund. Um, and we've worked with them to implement eBloom into their ESG hedge fund manager product. Um, we're working with more RAs and wealth managers um, and as we release our, our compliance and SFDR reporting, I think we'll also expand much more into European managers and those that are selling into European markets that require this new type of reporting for uh, SFDR compliance. Uh, now, in the next year, we're rolling out new products for private markets. So that would be private equity and venture capital managers um, that want this as a reporting solution. Uh, also family offices and pension plans that want cross manager reporting that they can roll up and share with their constituents on, you know, the impacts of ESG in the portfolio or impact. Fantastic. Um, is there anything about eBlue which we haven't covered and should have? Um, I mean, honestly, it's the, the team that I work with is just really dedicated to being successful in, in our mission. And I think they're some of the the real leaders on ESG. Um, and, you know, we love our client relationships. We rely heavily on clients and potential clients to give us insights on what they need built. But, you know, I think it's nice to see that ESG is shifting so quickly that the, uh, you know, the compliance world and, and the regulatory world is catching up and we, we just really want to serve as a strong partner to our clients. So I'm excited to see some of the releases that are coming up in the product and uh, also some announcements on some strategic partnerships that we've been developing. Fantastic. Well, it sounds very exciting, Anna. So um, so thank you very much indeed for coming and talking about Eve Blue today and introducing it and um, best of luck for the future. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>